Hi, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of UConn 360. That is the world's only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. We're broadcasting to you from the beautiful Lakeside Building in Stores, Connecticut. And joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Happy summer. And Ken Best. We are here. <laughs> you need a new <laughs> yeah, line. We've we got to work on our snappy patter. Um, well, we can start all over again if you want. Nah. No. Nope. Um, we have some exciting stories for you. Some really good stories, actually. Oh, actually. We always have very good. Surprised. Now, that sounded pretty bad. Oh. We have really good stories again. Yeah. Yet better. again. Better. We keep going to the well and coming up with great stuff. But first we have some news. Julie? Sure. I have some health research news. Did you know it's estimated that 15 to 20 percent of the overall population of U.S. adults over 65 suffers from depression? And in nursing home residents, that number goes up to 50 percent. We've got some researchers here who found that certain selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, also known as SNRIs, that are used to treat depression, increase the risk of falls in people over 65. That was discovered by UConn School of Pharmacy faculty William L. Baker and Diana M. Soberaj and researchers from UConn Health and Yale University. University. Falls and depression are both major areas of concern in this population, and the study authors say doctors should be careful with what medications they prescribe to treat major depressive disorder. Duloxetine, commonly known as Cymbalta, most notably increased the risk of falls in the study population. That study was funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and recently appeared in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. Ken? I want to focus a little bit on a story by our colleague Jackie Severance in UConn today, who has talked with Master of Social Work students who are working in the federal district offices this past year. She spoke with uh, Tess Leon, who did a field internship in the office of uh, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. The MSW program here at UConn includes the Nancy Humphreys Institute for Political Social Work, which uh, was created by the former dean of social work for whom it is named. The time was the only such program in the United States. Uh, dean Humphrey started the institute in 1995 when there was an increasing awareness of the need for social workers who become more active in the political process to both educate public officials about the need for funding and to motivate their clients to participate in the social service system and the process of working on, on these issues. In addition to training social workers to run for office, the Humphreys Institute is training social workers to engage their clients and the communities to vote by integrating nonpartisan voter engagement into social service delivery and organizational culture. The National Association of Social Workers has more than 100 elected officials listed for local, state, and federal offices. Those are people who are social workers in addition to being elected officials. There are three members of Congress who are social workers, and in Connecticut, there are a dozen social workers in the General Assembly, including several UConn alums. Next year, there are going to be three students working in political offices from the MSW program. And the story is available at the UConn Today website, which is today.ucon.edu. Very interesting. Very interesting. I've got some great budget news. <laughs> Not great. Everybody. Uh, the University of Connecticut is fiscally healthy and is running a modest surplus until the state charges us for its unfunded pension liabilities. Mm. And then we're in deficit. Excellent. $19.6 million in deficit in the Ooh. current fiscal year, $7 million for UConn Health. The Board of Trustees are scheduled to vote today on a new budget for the fiscal year. Uh, the gaps will be closed by attrition 
less hiring, letting positions go unfulfilled, and possibly by drawing down from the rainy day fund. Ouch. So the context of this is that it's a structural problem in the state, but it's also one that's familiar to public universities around the country. In the last 10 years, state funding to UConn has been reduced by about $166 million. Wow including about half of that in the past four years alone. There's a a new study out by the National Bureau of Economic Research, which measures the effects of reduced state funding on public education. And you're not going to be surprised to learn it's not good. Not good. Not good. Yeah, so that's just – that's the state of the budget. It's not good news. It's not happy news. No, but um, but it's news. But it is a national story because I read it today on the Chronicle of Higher Education website, which references that study that you mentioned. Let's let's get some happier stuff in here. <laughs> let's do it. Julie. Yeah. You got a happy story for I us. I do have a happy story. Speaking of the good work we do, we talk a lot about the real-world experience UConn students get. And that real-world experience doesn't just benefit these students, Tom. It benefits companies. It benefits the government. It benefits local neighborhoods like in Hartford. One of the largest efforts that allows UConn students to help real entities is the Senior Design Project, which is something that every engineering student has to complete before they graduate. Every year, more than 800 students Students team up to complete more than 200 projects, working with over 100 partners in industry and government to help them solve pressing problems through smart engineering. They're presented with dozens of projects, and they have to take personality tests and then rank their top five choices before they're randomly assigned to groups to complete a project. This year, one of the most coveted projects for mechanical engineering majors was the Keeney Memorial Clock Tower restoration. The lucky students assigned to this group were Henry Corshane, Garrett Murphy, and Spencer Padgett. Before these students completed their work this April, the clock in the historic tower in the north end of Hartford had been stopped and its chimes silent for four years. Here it is. (laughs) Do you hear it? That's Henry Hester on the day of the unveiling this April. He's vice president of the Friends of Keeney Park and sponsor of the Yukon Senior Design Project to restore the Keeney Memorial Clock Tower. The 130-foot tower on the site of Walter and Henry Keeney's wholesale grocery store is part of the brothers' lasting legacy, which also includes the nearby 693-acre Keeney Park. The Friends of Keeney Park formed about three decades ago, according to Hester, and have worked with the city and other groups like the Keeney Park Sustainability Project to honor their downtown North neighborhood's history. This clock tower means to the city that they understand clearly what the Keeney family have left them to take care. And with the collaboration of UConn, is community engagement, it has worked well. I'm big on collaboration, getting people out of silos and working as a team. And this has been a great team effort. And it's all about continuing to create the energy in the city. The students said they were drawn to the project for its hands-on nature, the ability to get out of the theoretical work of the classroom and use the technical skills they've acquired to build and repair a tangible thing. Team member Henry Corshane said the fact that they can drive by the tower and point to it, showing the work they did to restore this piece of history, was an added bonus. Definitely the fact that the clock tower is in the middle of Hartford or in that in the community itself. We could work on something that helped us be a part of that and kind of improve the area as well just was a really special opportunity as opposed to working on something super small and niche. There's a big, big spotlight on this this project for years to come. According to Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin, there will literally be a big spotlight on the tower for years to come. It really is an amazing thing that as you drive down this intersection, this is the main intersection in our city, that this beautiful historic structure is right here. And I think all too often just kind of escapes notice. As large as it is, as magnificent an example of, I think, what they call collegiate Gothic architecture as it is, we just kind of forget it. 
Well, now that it's going to ring again and chime again and keep the clock, we're going to make sure that we're highlighting it. And so this morning I called over and said, we need to make sure that we light this tower up so that when you drive down at night and you come down Albany or Maine, you see this tower as a symbol of our city, of our history, of the partnerships that are moving us forward. And to everybody who's a part of that, I want to say thank you. The senior design project lasts for an engineering student's entire senior year. Spencer Paget said once the team was assigned to the Clock Tower project in September, they started the process by getting to know each other's strengths and to gel as a team. We went up there several times just to look at the thing and figure out how it worked, how it moved, what's broke, what's not broke, kind of all that stuff. So it started with a lot of, I guess, dissection of what was up there and a lot of pulling stuff apart, getting everything we needed in order. Over the like late fall, winter, it was a lot of consulting with clock professionals, people who restore these things for a living, companies who put together equipment packages for all the clocks, and then starting to make plans for uh, fabricating all our own parts. And then in the spring, it was a lot of fabricating, ordering, and installing. Determining how to get the clock running again allowed the students to employ everything they'd mastered in their engineering educations up to that point. It also required a fair amount of ingenuity, Garrett Murphy explained. The parts were unfortunately missing when we got to the clock tower. They had been removed at some point. So we had, in the sense of an original design, we had nothing to go on. So we had to kind of come up with our own design based off of what we knew they had to do rather than what an old set did. And that meant that we had to come up with a preliminary design and we actually used 3D printing to print it out of plastic first, bring it to the tower, test fit it, notice any adjustments that need to be made, bring it back, make those adjustments in CAD, print it again, go back. Um, and we probably did that anywhere between two to three times, depending on which of the three linkage arms we were working on. And then once we had the final design, we were able to make them out of 6061 aluminum and put those in as the final final set. I sat in front of that mechanism for probably just three hours just to figure out how it worked, never mind what I had to then design to make it work again. And our advisor, Professor Tom Mealy, towards the end of the project, when I and I brought the finalized one, I put them in, and he was there one day, and I was kind of adjusting them, tuning them, and it was funny because he had this light bulb moment where it just clicked, and he went, "How did you get this right on the first shot?" You know, and I said, "Well, it didn't wasn't the first shot," and he's like, "Yeah, but you got it right on the first aluminum ones you made." And he, he kind of just realized how much actually went into it, so that was definitely the most difficult part for me. And as it goes through the catches. It goes tooth, 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 until right there, where it falls, shuts it off. That and shuts it off. Nice. So that's this side. Yeah, everything else was was a matter of kind of just specking out parts. You know, trying to figure out what requirements we needed. We had to change a few, make a few design changes overall. But that was definitely you know, we had no documentation, no drawings, nothing to go off of there. So you know, before the motor right, right, out of right, here, right, so right. we reverse direction. Now we don't. So that was a consideration. But then it it says right in the thing we can replay. Is that linking it all back up and tinkering so it's just right is. You know, I spent multiple days after they were installed just making minute adjustments, you know, maybe go off a minute earlier here, go off a minute later there. Being from Connecticut but not being from Hartford or the area, it was surprising to me as we were working on the project just how much restoring the, the clock and that park means to the community around it. The working clock means to the community that the city is alive because they can hear it is tangible and with this piece that they can see and touch it's a way of seeing what the Keeney 
family left to us to take care forever. There was a nice number of people who were there to see the unveiling and were there for the event and, you know, listen to the mayor speak and all that. We had a couple people who were just walking around and going on, you know, their daily walk through the area and noticed the crowd and then heard the chimes and everything and they came up to us and said, thank you, and they haven't heard it ring for years and we're not even sure which bells they heard ringing in the past because there's a couple different systems up there, but either way, it was really special to see that these people cared. This is a good piece to kind of uh, emphasize some of the good stuff that's happening in the city, and the city is alive and well. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. That was good stuff. It was a considerable effort on my part to put that together. I did want to thank Tom Reddig, who's one of our videographers, because he let me use the sound that he gathered on the clock tower, uh, the day of the clock tower unveiling, and while the team was working on the project. So that's synergy in this office. We we help each other, we share each other's and this resources. Was the, this was the good audio version of that story because it was on TV when they had that, that opening. Yeah, the story was heavily covered in the media. And here we had a video. We have a story by Jackie Severance also on UConn Today. And you can check those out for some more information about this project. Ken, if we had the budget for uh, uh, songwriting rights, I would be playing that song, I'm Your Puppet, right now. <laughs> because you've got a puppet story for us. I do, but there are other puppet stories and puppet songs that we could use. But we are talking about our puppets. Yes. And uh, specifically, the current exhibit at the Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry, which is celebrating the career of Bart Rocco Burton Jr., who has led UConn's world-renowned puppet arts program since the retirement of his mentor, Frank Ballard, in 1990. The exhibit is titled It's Always Pandemonium, which is a great puppet word. And it's a tribute to the Pandemonium Puppet Company that uh, Professor Rockaburton started when he was a UConn MFA student. And it includes nearly 100 puppets he created uh, with his Pandemonium collaborators and the dozens of puppet arts students that he has uh, mentored and guided. His students have performed or built puppets for Broadway shows, television or films, including Avenue Q, Crash and Bernstein, Sesame Street Blues Room, between the Lions, and it's a big, big world. Before he came back to UConn, he helped uh, famed Howdy Doody puppeteer Margot Rose to start mm -hmm. the Institute of Professional Puppetry Arts at the Eugene O'Neill Center on the Connecticut Shoreline, which just finished its National Puppetry Conference earlier this month. I went out to the Depot campus where the Puppet Arts Workshop is located to talk with him about his four decades as a puppeteer, educator, and arts administrator, first asking about his approach to puppetry. We intended to do shows that we would like to see. Okay, I don't, I don't think we were comparing ourselves to any of the world traditions of adult puppetry. Uh, we wanted to entertain ourselves. And so um, the shows that we were touring at the time we called vignette shows. Uh, each each uh, show would have, you know, seven or eight small stories that related to each other. And what we could do with this was to plug one out and plug another one in so we could perform in a grammar school in the morning and at a college in the evening with exactly the same show, just a couple changes. And that was really satisfying. You know, people would come up to us at the, at the college and say, hey, do you have any kid shows for kids? And we go, that was it. You know, but we also never played down the kids. I've always had the theory that if you want to perform for children, bring them up. If you use a 10-pound word, figure out how to explain to them what that 10-pound word means. 
how would you characterize your work? Because <laughs> it's there's a there's so much of it over such a long period of time, and I, I know you said the other day uh, when asked about uh, your favorite puppet, it's well, it's the one that's doing what I needed to do right now. Mm-hmm. But you've got a body of work now, yeah. And it's, I know it's like asking what's your favorite kid, but still, there are, must have been projects that come to mind when you think about what you've done. The, the exhibit that's coming down uh, has been curated by Matthew Sorensen, who's one of our grad students, and he has talked with me uh, extensively. Uh, we have gone through storage, looked at puppets. He's heard stories of each individual puppet, and he has basically been researching me, which uh, I find quite interesting, actually, because he's now able to tell me things that I've forgotten entirely. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was part of my life. Yes, okay. So the first room is going to be those puppets that were built for the pandemonium tours and these tend to be oh maybe two three feet tall you know they're 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 handleable they could pack up into a couple of boxes in the van and drive off to you know southern new jersey or wherever traveling puppet show yeah oh yeah yeah the other room is going to be puppets that have been created since i came back to the university as a professor and what he has noticed is that one of the things that happened when i got back here is that my puppet's enlarged exponentially. There are 12-foot puppets. There are 15-foot long puppets, uh, you know, huge heads. And he said, obviously, these were not puppets that you had to carry around in a van. And um, and you just sort of blew out <laughs> your, your expressive possibilities. So he, he's organized it very nicely. I'm enjoying what he's doing. And I, th- I think it, it represents my career. But what has been important to me in my career uh, since becoming a professor or, let's say, the, the, the head of the Institute of Professional Puppetry Arts at the O'Neill Center is that my real work has been about students. Yes, I express myself still. I, I still, still enjoy that work. But what's more important to me is that I help students find their own voice. And so when I first started doing this work uh, at, the, at the O'Neill Center, uh, Pam Arciero, colleague, turned to me and, and said, you know, you used to build a lot of puppets every year, and now you're not building them. You're running a school program. What's going on here? Are you okay? And I thought about it. I said, you know, Pam, I'm not building as many puppets personally, but the fact is I'm building puppeteers. And just think how many puppets I'm building exponentially by that. <laughs> so uh, that, that has been my trumpet call. I'm building puppeteers. In addition to performing, conducting workshops, teaching, and writing about puppetry, Professor Rocco Burton has also become a worldwide ambassador for puppetry, traveling to Europe and Asia, where he helped bring China into the international puppetry organization known as UNAMA, the Union Internationale de la Marionette. He recalled his first visit to China. We spent a week there. Um, as I was going, I was packing a couple of puppets to bring with me to show them what, what I do. And I look at it and go, well, no, that was a three-person show. That one I did with a partner. I ended up taking the one puppet that I, I did solo, which was a mole named Mumford Mole uh, that I had built for New England Puppet and Family Theater Series in the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts. And I brought Mumford with me, and he was a hit. Every meeting we had, we, we had meetings with the television people. We had meetings with politicians, we, all sorts of artists. And in every situation, this mole was, was embraced. I, I actually have photos of Chinese politicians cradling this, this mole in their, in their arms like a baby. 
and we started saying, what's going on here? You know, why, why are they taking to this character so much? And then I realized when I, when I laughed with him, I would sort of throw his head back and open his mouth really wide. And at the time, the Chinese were still a bit conservative. And so when they would laugh, they would cover their, their mouth with their hand. So I said, okay, he's, he's obviously, you know, different than the rest of them. We ended up do- shooting a project, and we worked with one of their leading artists, uh, a woman named Hua Hua Zhang, who came over uh, with, a, with a handler. And while we were working, I kept her- hearing Hua Hua and the handler referring to me and Steve as Dabitsa, Dabitsa. I finally said to them, what does Dabitsa mean? They said, oh, it's our word for foreigner. And I, oh, I'm not the foreigner here, you're the foreigner. You're the Dabitsa. Well, as I slowly learned a little bit more of the Chinese language, I learned that Da means big and Bitsa means nose. Okay? So their word for foreigner is big nose. Well, what had I done but bring the incarnate big nose with me to China in the mole? He's got a snout that's four inches long. And so uh, it was just happenstance that that worked. So uh, with the the TV project that we did, the Mole was one of the characters, and we created a, a red squirrel uh, representing China that Hua Hua performed. Four years ago, under Professor Rocco Burton's leadership, UConn hosted the National Conference of the Puppeteers of America, which featured dozens of puppeteers attending a week of professional workshops, as well as performing puppet shows for children and adults. Uh, it was, I think it was very important, and, and maybe even more so than when Frank did it. He had started the program in 65 and in the early 70s brought the national organization in. I never heard him talk about any overwhelming support from the university for what he did. When we did it in 2015, we had exponential support from every aspect of the university. I I think the event that took place in 2015 was really, really special. And, And it it still it still echoes. Um, uh, people still talk about it. Uh, they have memories of having been here. People who are coming back are going, "Oh yeah, I remember we saw this and this." You know, so uh, it, it it was a very good event for us to hold. Looking forward, the program is internationally renowned. It's the only program of its kind in the world. Uh, you've been influential in establishing some other uh, programs at other universities. Mm-hmm. Where are things going to be headed down the road? Because uh, you've put a lot of people out there now. Uh, it's a it's a really good question, Ken. We are thinking about what the future is. You know, I I'm beyond retirement age, but have no interest in retiring. Uh, I'd, I'd be bored otherwise. You play with puppets all day. Yeah, right. well. <laughs> Um, in, in, all, in all honesty, I'm a desk puppeteer. I manipulate paper at this point, but I still work with students. So <laughs> we are talking about what the future uh, possibilities are for the program. Um, I hope that I have established some guidelines to run the program in a way that is beneficial to the university as well as to the student. Yes, whoever might come in here beyond me is is going to bring their own ideas, I hope. I've always said that, you know, Frank, Frank created the foundation for the program. I've worked on the first floor, and I've started building the staircase to the second floor. So let's see what happens from there.
I honestly, I loved that interview. It made me like feel really warm and fuzzy inside. And um, what he said about building puppeteers, ugh, just tugged at my heartstrings. The show at the museum is also great. The um, Ballard always does a great job. I don't know that it's a hidden gem on campus, but uh, it's definitely a gem. It's so, a gem that not a lot of people utilize, I want to say. I think so. So definitely Go get to over the there. Ballard. It's a lot of fun. The, the puppets are incredible. The exhibit is up until the end of September. So it's plenty of time to go visit. Got time. As a special offer to our listeners, if you encounter me in the Ballard Museum this summer, I will croon the song, I'm Your Puppet. Excellent. Yeah. We've, uh, we've got a mystery this week <gasps> in Tom's History Corner. Yes. Who was the first woman to attend UConn? Did you ever live in... Wait, Yes. I know. Is it one of the? It's one of them. Nellie Wilson. Yes. It well, is Nellie Wilson. Well, I don't know. We're okay. going to find out. Okay. Did you ever live in South Campus? I did. I lived in Wilson Hall. Okay. So our website, UConn.edu/slash/about/us/slash/history, says Nellie Wilson was the first woman to attend UConn in the spring of 1891. But she wasn't. Well, I don't know. Actually, it's a mystery. <laughs> okay. Uh, so in in history books about UConn by both Bruce Stave and former University of Communications Mark Roy. They identify Wilson and Louisa Rosebrooks mm-hmm. as starting in the spring of 1891 together. They don't mention a third student, Anna Snow, who also has a dorm. A dorm at, at South End after her. But she's named in other accounts. Okay. There was a report to the General Assembly from then Stores Agricultural College in 1897. Part of the report listed all the graduates from each year starting with 1883, which is the first year anyone graduated. For the year 1894... Among the graduates, they list Nellie Wilson, Louisa Rosebrooks, and Anna Snow, and list their occupations as housekeeper, which I, I think might just mean that they were married and not working. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure. Also, interestingly, just as an aside, listing the uh, locations and occupations of all the graduates is really – it's fascinating. Almost everyone is like farmer living right. in New England. Class of 1896, Fred Robinson is listed as a dentist living in Shanghai, China. Hey. I think he's got to be the first Yukon dentist. Maybe, yeah. I would assume. So uh, Nellie Wilson, Louisa Rosebrooks, Anna Snow, they seem like good choices. <laughs> However. <laughs> Unless. A January 26, 1992 New York Times article was sent to me this week. It begins, a century ago, the president of Storrs Agricultural School, Benjamin Coons, felt so strongly about enrolling a student named I. Lee that he skirted the law and kept the admission secret from the school's trustees. Hmm. The student's first name was Ida, but state law prohibited women students at the school. Mr. Coons did not accept fees from Miss Lee and could not give her academic credit, but she got her education. Wow. The Times story cites her obituary as evidence for this. I could not find her obituary. I did find some information about her. She uh, spent most of her life in Glastonbury, where she ran a tavern Hmm. called the Hartford Hale Tea Room that was famous for its Baptist cakes, which are basically donuts. Okay. All right. Go Ida. Go Ida. I found no record of her on the graduate lists. I can't find any record that she attended UConn. How did they know all that stuff about Coons? That was all from her obit, you think? I think. I can't find the obit. Huh. There's a new book that was just published last year by Nathan Sorber called Land Grant Colleges and Popular Revolt. And there's a section in there about UConn. In that book, he says Nellie Wilson enrolled in the spring of 1891 after writing a letter to Benjamin Coons Mm -hmm. asking if there was a reason why she couldn't. And Coons apparently responded and said no. He also says that Louisa Rosebrooks and Anna Snow did not enroll until the fall. Okay. So in Sorber's telling, Nellie Wilson was the first, even though they all graduated in 1894. However. <laughs> the plot the keeps plot thickening. The plot keeps thickening. 
In Bruce Stave's book, he says there were about 20 women who attended classes informally prior to 1891. They were never enrolled. So it may not have even been Ida that was the first. There could have been others. Right. Or Ida might have been one of those women who just took a class and didn't get credit I think or it's very, I don't know, noble of these women to really just want an education and yeah. not care that right. they are getting anything out of it. Exactly. Yeah. Paper-wise. That's pretty cool. Um, so th- that's my hunch about Ida's. Can we write – or can we name a road after Ida? Ida Lee, you said? Ida Lee. Ida Lee. That sounds like a pun. <laughs> she was just Ida Lee taking classes at the oh. store's campus. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, okay, let's put our reporter's hats on here. Why? Um, because we can. Because you want to solve the mystery I, that Tom well, just I, lays out for us and doesn't solve? You, you received a story that mentions it. What was the subject of this story? It was 1992, and it was celebrating 100 years of women at UConn. Okay. The first woman graduate would be the first one to have been awarded a degree. So we're confident we know who the first three women to graduate right. are. Right. It they, depends on what your your criteria are. And I think the first woman enrolled was Nellie Wilson. Enrolled officially. Officially enrolled. Probably, yes. Um, but so the moral of the story is we've always been progressive. Yes, that's true. There were women here first. We just didn't acknowledge them as real students. <laughs> right. Yeah, we get their names <laughs> off the books to hide them from the weirdo <laughs> trustees. I'm going to look into this more. I'm going to see yeah, if I can find. Yeah, go do some real research, Tom. Jeez. <laughs> I would love to know. You're just opening up I know. all these questions. It seems like because every once in a while someone email, emails me a simple question like, who is the first woman? Yeah. And then I think that's a simple answer. And I look not into it and I think, no. Answer. I like that you're not just tying everything up with a nice bow. It's Tom. like a, There's a lot of mysteries series here. of Russian nesting dolls. Yes. It just keeps. Yes. Just like, like you know that. what? Uh, life is a mystery. Everyone must stand alone. I hear you call my name and it sounds like home. Well, ah, that's it for this week. Thank God. Thank God. Uh, we'll be back next week with more of the same. More Not excitement. Next week. No, we won't. We well, never, depending, depending no. when you listen to this. The no, fortnight. Yeah. The fortnight. Fortnight. Yeah. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. Mm-hmm. You can also find me uh, at main underscore old where I post old pictures. If I find a picture of Ida Lee, I will post it. If you are Ida Lee, please get in touch. <laughs> yeah, because I want your secret to yeah. an everlasting life. We have a Ouija board set up here in the studio. <laughs> Julie, is there anything you'd like to plug? No, I'm on Twitter at Julie Bartuga. Ken. Subscribe. Ken. Fridays from 830 to 1030 on 91.7 WHUS in stores. UConn Sound Alternative. Morning music. How much grindcore do you play? Zero percent grindcore. <laughs> Okay, all right. Thanks, everyone. Ding. Ding. Ding.